should really do on these podcasts at the moment is an ad for my own book. Block, Delete, Move On is being released by Penguin in February 2022, but it is available for pre-order now. Block, Delete, Move On is a guide for anyone who is dating, particularly women who date men, but uh, it has been read by a number of queer women who have said that they can apply it to their own dating life, although there are lots of bits that are specifically related to cis uh, heterosexual men. Um, It is what I would have wanted to read before I jumped fanny first into the dating scene, onto dating apps, uh, and, and then made a ton of mistakes got really hurt and I I wish that I'd had somebody to tell me all of these things it's not like other dating books that are like this is how you get your man it's a dating book that's like okay this is how we avoid the bad ones and if you've got all of this armory in your toolkit then you're much more likely to have better safer dating experiences Uh, if you want to pre-order it doesn't cost anything to pre-order they will ask for your card details but they don't take the payment until February. It's available on Amazon, Waterstones, Blackwells. Um, I'm not sure where else actually, but if you go to my um, story highlights on my Instagram page, la la la, let me explain. There's a story highlight called The Book and if you click there, there's lots more information about the book and links to swipe up and pre-order. Welcome to the La 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 Let Me Explain podcast and today I am really happy to be joined by Lucy Whitaker, who is the founding director of Alpha Vesta CIC uh, who are a training organization uh, who help to train professionals, employers, basically anyone who who works with the public really I guess um, in understanding the complexities of domestic violence and all the nuance that that goes around it. And the reason that I know about Alpha Vesta is because they've trained me. Uh, I've been to a few of their uh, trainings, including uh, pets, pets and domestic abuse. I've been to the eating disorders and domestic abuse training and complexities of domestic abuse. So amazing trainer. So welcome, Lucy. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming along. Tell us a bit about who you are and, and what Alpha Vesta does. Thank you. Um, well, I founded Alpha Vesta myself um, in 2019 um, as a community interest company. I'd spent um, many, many years uh, working in frontline practice around domestic abuse. Um, I specialised in complex casework and child protection. So in effect, my kind of daily life was about working with people in crisis. So we're talking about families that have reached that point where children may have had to go into care. Uh, we've got real complexities, perhaps in terms of a victim or perpetrators mental health issues substance misuse issues so that was kind of my my life every day and I kind of would always say about that time there wasn't probably a day that went by where I wasn't banging my head against a brick wall or kind of just shaking my head thinking why had I not seen this family or this person sooner why what I could have achieved potentially six months earlier uh, three months earlier but yeah I was the one that was always called in uh, very late on uh, in that story and kind of trying to fix things um, at a very very late stage as we know that isn't always possible Um, so it certainly led me to a very very strong ethos of wanting 
to reach people sooner. Uh, in terms of domestic abuse, um, I have to say we're not very good at that. Uh, we tend to plough a lot of resources into what we call high-risk work, uh, crisis work, and we don't do very much at an earlier point. Uh, time and time again, I mean, you'll know yourself in your background, uh, children don't meet threshold, do they, uh, mm. for, for intervention? Uh, things aren't bad enough. Um, and there's awful, often there's nothing there until things reach crisis point. So I really set upon a mission when I created Alpha Vesta um, to find better ways of reaching people at an earlier point and thinking about the best way to do that. Where does that awareness need to be delivered? How should it be delivered? What are some of the barriers around that? Um, so I spent really a year um, doing that research and then kind of built the foundation of what Alpha Vesta is today, which is very much about training. It's about grassroots training. Um, it's about building understanding. It's about embedding culture. <coughs> it's about um, learning, really, some of these, as you say, complexities around domestic abuse. Uh, one in five adults are affected. One in five children are affected. So it's really, really unlikely that you um, haven't come across somebody throughout your life that hasn't been affected by domestic abuse we just wouldn't necessarily recognize it mm. um, so certainly all of our training is designed to embed that culture uh, and understanding we've been doing online training now for over a year uh, I think we've trained probably over 3,000 uh, professionals and members of the public since we started doing that at the beginning the online training at the beginning of the pandemic it's so important uh, what you do because you're absolutely right I think there are so many there's such a sort of lack of education. I think people hear about domestic abuse and they have this image of the, you know, battered wife, this woman who's constantly got black eyes and is saying, oh, I got hit by the cupboard door. You know, we have this picture that we see on EastEnders or Coronation Street or whatever. And that's the kind of idea that everybody has. But but actually, if if more members of the public, if everybody had a much greater idea about how complex domestic abuse was, there's so many points that people could intervene before it gets to that murder or that serious injury or whatever. So I think that's just so essential. And it's so it's so normal in our society. Domestic abuse is so common that it can be quite difficult to convince somebody or educate them or train them differently if actually that's kind of what they expect from, from gender roles or that's what they've seen or that's what they're experiencing themselves. There can be like elements of denial. I think we can't forget that professionals are humans too. And, you know, I think often, um, I think often professionals are unable to separate themselves. Uh, but I mean, most, I'd say most social workers, most police officers are, are pretty bloody good on domestic violence. They see it so often that we all kind of become experts in it. But there are failings, aren't there? And there are professionals who, who really, they need that extra to be able to get their, their heads around it. It tends to be just about that culture of understanding and that empathy <coughs> sometimes. And like you say, somebody that may have experienced something similar, firstly, there's kind of this sort of misunderstanding that, that that wasn't abuse. Like mm. you said, well, that's just what families do, isn't it? That's just, you know my dad did that you know that's how we how we grew up it didn't do me any harm mm. so you've kind of got this sort of understanding for somebody firstly that's experienced it um, but also this sort of lack of empathy um, about really understanding the complexities 
of it. Um, so when we sort of train um, any professionals, um, we always kind of cover um, quite a big section on why doesn't somebody just leave. And when we kind of dig down into all of the complexities around even just sometimes their, their kind of idea of what a relationship should look like, uh, you find there's a lot of complexity in what's been normalised for somebody, uh, what may be acceptable in their culture or their community, uh, for instance. Um, sometimes there's a vulnerability there that prevents um, somebody even seeing that this could be domestic abuse. And we, we always say, you know, you have to remember that somebody that's being abused in the context of domestic abuse has generally always got a very complex um, attachment to that abuser. This mm. isn't a stranger, is it? This isn't a stranger. Remember, this could be a son. This could be a daughter as well as an intimate partner, the, the father of your children, for instance. And um, ultimately, when things perhaps go wrong or things appear wrong in a relationship, somebody will want help for that person. They'll want to try and change um their circumstances rather than perhaps call the police or mm. criminalize them. Um, so it's not that they're, they're not trying to help themselves or trying to help their situation. It's just a question sometimes of how they can achieve that mm. um, and how what is, what is, is kind of um, expected of them, but also what is achievable in many, many ways for them. Um, so it's so, so complex when we start to dig down in that and we find this sort of awareness around that understanding of those complexities is so, so important because suddenly everything clicks uh, into place. I have this fantastic quote that I use um, and it's instead of asking what's wrong with them, ask what piece of this puzzle am I missing that makes this make sense? Because it will make sense, but sometimes people aren't necessarily looking hard enough. Yeah. It was when we first spoke, you know, because we're talking a lot about kind of professionals now, um, when we first spoke, we had this kind of moment of like, oh, we're so the same. <laughs> um, because, sorry, I just want to give a little disclaimer first. <clears throat> My chest, I keep wanting needing to kind of cough. I had COVID at the beginning of the month or what I believe to be COVID. If it wasn't, it was a chest infection. And I'm still, can you can kind of hear that? Um, I'm still a bit wheezy. So just apologies throughout this podcast because I keep having to go, <coughs> which sounds very unattractive. Don't worry. <coughs> and also another disclaimer, my dog's here and she's just like wandering about and kind of shaking and itching her ears and stuff. So that might be a bit annoying. But yeah, I remember we, we, we spoke on the phone and... Um, we spoke about the fact that, you know, we think it's it's really excellent actually now that social media is kind of another tool. You know, we're trying to, um, what your, the purpose of your work is ch training professionals, making sure that organisations have got domestic violence policies and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but another really important thing is, is making sure that those messages are going out to, to the public, um, educating people and, and educating pe victims and survivors. Um, you know, I think the, the, the fact that social media has a lot of accounts that deal with domestic abuse is, is fabulous, actually. It's really, really important. And I think women telling their stories or people telling their stories, actually, anyone who's been a victim of, of domestic abuse, telling their stories, sharing their stories, the knock-on effect of that is absolutely phenomenal, really. It, you know, there's lots of people that would have just heard one person tell their story and that gives them the confidence to tell theirs and to take, you know, make steps to leave. But there is also this kind of phenomenon now on social media where people are asking, um, you know, lots of influencers do Q&As or things like that and, and, and people, I get lots of Q&As and people will often ask me questions about domestic abuse, which I'm qualified to answer. So I answer them. 
And then I get this kind of like, uh, when I see people also ask it. People, it doesn't appear that people come to me to ask answer those questions because I'm qualified. It feels like people just ask anyone these questions. I see so many, you know, just influencers who've got, you know, fashion influencers or beauty influencers. And people ask them these questions about domestic abuse. And they'll answer them. And sometimes the answers are all right. <coughs> Often the answers make me want to have a stroke. Um, <laughs> but we're in this weird culture now, aren't we? Where, where, where people are, are, are willing to just get their kind of education and information from anywhere. Um, and it's kind of scary, isn't it? It's really scary. And I mean, we've talked about this so much, haven't we, of, of sort of a lot of misinformation that's out there. And I think um, when we look as well at some really sort of high risk, sometimes fatal incidents um, of domestic abuse, often people have tried to be very well-meaning. They've tried to be kind. It, it all comes from a good place, mm. I think. You know, if your Absolutely. friend came to you and said, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. Can you help me? Your instinct would be to want to help them. But the problem that we have with domestic abuse is, is the number of risks that sit around that. Uh, potentially if things escalate, if get if things get worse, um, we know people can be seriously injured. We know people can be killed as a result of that. So what happens is sometimes, uh, as well as that advice being very well-meaning, sometimes it's not fully informed uh, yeah. in terms of those risks. And I know we've had this sort of conversation where sometimes people um, have developed kind of code words and code signals oh. and that's our that's our big bugbear isn't oh, it <laughs> it's the oh, it's my biggest pet peeve so so it's that thing if you follow my instagram you'll have seen me complaining about it on many occasions where people will <coughs> advertise these code words like doing hand signals or um, it, there was one that was going around which was like i'm i'm pretending to sell makeup and if you're in an abusive relationship you can um dm me to say you want a mascara and I'll send the police to your house. I mean, it was just nonsensical. So but dangerous. So many people with millions of followers were sharing it. And I mean, I don't know how anybody, I mean, it's just, it was just made no sense. And the worst thing about it was that if you contacted people to say, look, this is really dangerous, <coughs> this is not going to help victims of abuse or survivors of abuse, um, you've got to take it down. People would get really defensive. Very, I think, and it's and again because it is coming from a good place. It yeah. is coming from a good place, but it's so something like uh, code words, like you've mentioned it, sort of code words, code phrases. Now they've always been used, sort of historically, as, as you'll know as well, sort of uh, in domestic abuse cases. So I know I've worked with 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 people, and they've they've got a code word that they perhaps share with their sister or their mother or their father so actually if they feel in danger they feel things are escalating they would text or they would use that code word bring it into the conversation mm. some way so that's where the concept of code words came from but code words are very a very very specific word or a phrase or a gesture that's designed to then have a very very specific action as a result yeah. of it so if I bring in, I don't know, I could use the word pineapple, for instance, something like that. I bring that word into a conversation quite randomly. Like, did you um, bring your pineapple for lunch today? But that person on the other end knows that actually yeah. I need to call the police or I need my, I need to call their father or somebody to come round 
because they're concerned. So yeah. there's a very specific word or phrase that, that, that correlates to a very specific action. The problem is when you have these sort of generic code words and, co and, and actions, sometimes the police calling the police isn't going to be the right response exactly. for somebody. Sometimes they might just need to be able to get out of, of that property. They might need you to go and pick them up, yeah. for instance. They might not even be at home. Uh, for instance. So, you know, there's a number of different reasons. Um, and as well, I remember with one particular um, gesture, the code sort of gesture that was, that was used, by the time I saw that, by the time that reached us, in fact, in the UK, over 8 million people had seen that. Mm. So that means as many perpetrators of domestic <sighs> abuse have seen it as well as victims. So actually the victim's in trouble if the perpetrator catches them using that signal before we could ever get the police to them. Yeah, um, that was so, that other one, wasn't it? Yeah. Where it was like the, the at trouble, in trouble at home signal. And it was these people on this video doing this bloody hand waving with the perpetrator in the background and and it was unbelievable because all these people sharing it like you know if you're in a domestically abusive situation do these little hand signals you, you know for help and and I'd be in the comments going no first of all look, perpetrators are seeing this if, if victims are seeing this perpetrators are seeing it too now they might prevent their partners from having video calls now they're going to be suspicious of any hand movements um you, you know it, it, it endangers people but 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 also what if the person who you're doing it to you haven't got a pre-arrangement with them they might just start waving back at you you know or what or you might actually not even be waving and they're sending the police to your house you know what i mean it's too it's it's too vague it's it doesn't make any sense but the worst thing is that when you go in comments and you say look this is really dangerous um this shouldn't be used people just jump on you like well i think this is a really great idea i was a victim of abuse and this would have helped me okay but and that's the other thing we were talking about wasn't it that that actually being a victim of uh, of abuse and you could you know have been in a number of abusive relationships but that doesn't make you an expert I mean, I've had a child, I'm not a midwife, I've got a vagina, I am not a gynecologist, you know, you can't, um, we can talk about our own experiences, I can talk about my own vagina, or my own child, or my own childbirth experiences, or whatever, um, unless I've sat through hundreds of childbirths, I cannot tell you that I'm an expert in, in these things, Um so yes, maybe that might have helped you in your specific circumstance, but unless you understand how um, domestic abuse plays out in many different ways, you, you, you stop fucking challenging the professionals when we're telling you this is dangerous. Um, and you're completely right. Code words are fantastic. And I would advise people who are in worrying relationships, in, in relationships with people who you're scared of, if you have a neighbour, a friend, a, fa a relative who you can talk to and set up a code word with that is only known to you or them, it could be sending a blank text, it could be a text saying fancy pizza later whatever but but it has to be a two-way process where the other person knows exactly what that means and what they're supposed to do when they receive the code and it should be a secret it should never be on social media and if you see people posting these things 
call them out because uh, they Absolutely. are in, they're endangering people aren't they it is it's it's just worrying and i know you know when i have a sort of meetings and talk to various sort of uh, people that work in this sector as well these these are sort of worrying things and this is really goes back doesn't it to what we want to try and achieve at alpha vesta which is about this greater understanding because if people have got that better understanding of domestic abuse they will see that's not a good idea exactly but because if because they don't they think it's a good idea and i think it's really important as well what you meant you sort of say about often somebody that's experienced domestic abuse forgets that that their experience is very relative to them and we have a number of different ways in which somebody may be abused um, in the context of domestic abuse, um, a number of different ways in which they experience that, a number of different ways in which they're impacted by that. So sometimes whilst that can be helpful to listen to somebody's story and listen to their experience in the way when you give the example of having a baby, don't you, and a child, you know, we all like to sort of talk about that experience, but we never ever assume that that experience is the same for somebody else mm. and it's important to remember that we're all different we all experience things in different ways so just because something may have seemed like a good idea for you or may have worked for you you have to remember that that might not be the case for somebody else and that could actually put them at increased risk uh, rather than than reduced risk so it's it's potentially really important when some of these things sort of come out and people suggest these th things to think about Who's developed that idea? Where's that idea come from? Is this somebody that's just come up with this sort of random idea? But where's that come from? Because if you find that's come from somebody that is an expert, that understands the complex complexities and risks around domestic abuse, generally that's going to be a better uh, kind of um, advice system than using somebody that potentially has maybe just experienced some level of abuse in their own personal um life exactly like women's aid and other uh uh organizations who specialize in domestic abuse all came out against those codes uh they've even talked about the dangers of the annie um ask annie the yeah. ask annie scheme which is where you can go into chemists um and ask for annie and the staff should know that that is an indication that you need support that you are uh, a victim and that should sort of generate um, them taking you off to a, a quiet room to give you advice, possibly calling the police if, if you want them to. And, I mean, Women's Aid have come out and said that they find it a dangerous scheme as well, although it does seem to be a scheme that was developed by, um, was it the Home Office? It's the Home Office, <coughs> yeah. Well, we can't, I'm about to see. <coughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, um, yeah, it was developed by the Home Office. Well, now we want to said that, you know, judging by Priti Patel and the decisions that she makes on things. And um, yeah, but I think even though it's kind of like, well, it's, it's half a good scheme because it enables people to have somewhere to go if they feel worried. My dog's now. What are you doing? Come here. Enables people to go uh, to, to have somewhere to go and to flee to, but I think there's also the, all these other kind of things around it, like um, what if you live in a small rural area and everybody knows everybody, and how do we make sure the people who work in the chemist are bound by those same confidentiality? How do we know that the person in the chemist is trained to know what to do and say effectively? Like, have they sat down and had proper? My sorry, my dog is really ruining. Come here. You can't She's ruin. Next to me. You're so selfish. 
We're talking about really important things here and you're just crying because I don't know what, because you've been fed, you've been walked. You're so needy. Right, she's on my lap now, so sorry. Hopefully this won't... It's a serious <laughs> subject. She's so pretty. She is pretty. She thinks she can get away with it yeah. all. And she can, to be honest. Um, anyway, so yeah, basically what we're trying to say without interruptions of the dog is be careful who you listen to. Yeah. Um, but also, as as I said at the beginning, survivors should share their stories. Absolutely. I think it's incredibly important. I think that helps no end. But sharing your stories and and saying what happened to you and how you dealt with things, um, like you say, doesn't mean that that's going to be right for everybody. Uh, and people really should get professional support because that's that's and really the safest way. I would always say way. to somebody, you know, well, no matter what, sort of, if a friend or somebody's perhaps given some well-meaning advice, if it feels uncomfortable for you, if it doesn't feel quite right for you don't do it yeah because potentially don't think just because your friend has says that or your mum said that um because generally they might not understand the complexities around domestic abuse and the risk so if it feels wrong i always have that that sort of phrase you know in, in my mind saying if it feels wrong chances are something may well be wrong yeah so kind of think a little bit harder about that and perhaps find um some some expertise uh, that be able to support you better yeah, and especially if the advice is just leave. Oh, don't say because that. Because <laughs> we know that leaving is the the highest risk time um, for uh, murder, actually, and serious violence. Um, leaving doesn't make it stop necessarily. Leaving can make it worse. Um, so the just leave advice is, is is terrible advice, really. There, there, there has to be a safety plan in place before anybody leaves. Um, Absolutely. We always, we always have this sort of common assumption, I think, that leaving the relationship will end the abuse. Mm. That's the fundamental mistake people make when they consider domestic abuse. And with certain forms of domestic abuse, things may well escalate and things may well get worse before they get better. So that's why it's so important that we have the right support around somebody and we're able to manage all of those risks. So that's often, I find, the first sort of element is this assumption that actually by just leaving, firstly, where are you going to go? Mm. Uh, but secondly, you're making this assumption that that the that will stop the abuse. Um, and that's the fundamental mistake uh, that we often make. But it's often a phrase still people use, isn't yeah. it? Why don't you just leave? Yeah. Just go. Just go, as if it's that easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, as normal, uh, we're going to answer questions that have been sent in by followers. Um, I have done a, a domestic abuse podcast before with Women's Aid, and that one was um, covering a lot more of the kind of basics of like what is domestic abuse how to help a friend um i've also so check that one out i think it's podcast number six um if, if you want to hear kind of very much back to basics domestic abuse conversation i think we deal with child courts um uh, child and family courts we deal with quite a lot in that podcast and then podcast number 18 is with uh free your mind cic who are a charity who work directly with children who have grown up in households of abuse and that one is very specifically around the impact on children um <coughs> and what kind of support we can give to children so we're not going to be covering those kind of topics today we're going to go even deeper today onto some of the more nuanced uh topics um so so i'm going to be answering questions sent in by followers my dog is like perching on my knee in the most irritating way so if i do sound a bit like 
Well, I don't know what to do with her at this moment. This is the last time I'm bringing you to the studio, for God's sake. Right, <laughs> trying to get her into a comfortable position. She's being really annoying. But anyway, I'm going to try and concentrate now on the questions. So the first question sent in by one of my Instagram followers says, I was grateful for your posts on pet abuse. Uh, you can find those posts if you go to my story highlights on pet abuse. And those posts were off the back of a training that I did with Lucy on uh, pets and domestic abuse. And she says, I was grateful for your posts on pet abuse. I live with my partner and our puppy. My partner hates it when I go out without him. And so he leaves the dog in the garden whenever I do, no matter the weather. He refuses to look after her. He says, I'm selfish for leaving him to deal with her. I'm pretty sure this is emotional abuse, but I want your confirmation. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a really interesting one. And I think when you look at that, that's that's obviously a really, really uncomfortable um, and, and kind of unhealthy way to be to be living and particularly um, not necessarily fair on the dog uh, mm. either. Whether we wanted to categorise that as domestic abuse, though, is slightly more complex um, because with domestic abuse and when we consider domestic abuse, it's always part of a pattern. Um, of different behaviours. So somebody that is experiencing domestic abuse won't just be being abused in one area of their life. So we would definitely, from what what, um, this follower is saying, um, there's some element of emotional abuse there and some kind of control over the um, dog or puppy whenever she wants to go out. But whether that is, or we would categorise that as domestic abuse, um, revolves really on, on looking at a much broader picture um so we want to look at other areas of their life as well so she's mentioned um i'm assuming it's a she mm. maybe stop. yeah it was, Don't a she. Say a she. Yeah, it was a she yeah <laughs> um saying that potentially um that seems to be about her going out yeah potentially about going out so actually let's explore that a little bit further so are there other ways in which you're prevented perhaps from going out what happens when you do go out what are the repercussions of that are you constantly quizzed so there is there some sort of repercussion in terms of sulking um they constantly pestering you uh when you're out so we'd be looking for other things as well but this is really brilliant that that she's addressed this because through the pet it's almost been a a red alert hasn't it that's gone off in her head thinking actually this is happening with with my pet could this be domestic abuse and that's exactly what we want to achieve isn't it with that awareness that actually that sets off an alarm bell in somebody's head to perhaps look a little bit deeper at their relationship and looking for those patterns, perhaps of control, isolation, jealousy, monitoring, and looking at other areas of their life where that may be a feature. Um, so that's a really, really good question. And I hope that I hope that helps a little bit. You know, what's interesting is that the I, I often feel like, you know, she says at the end, I'm pretty sure this is emotional abuse, but I want confirmation. And in a way, to me, almost that is confirmation because it, one of the the real things about emotional abuse is that sense of, oh, but but maybe it's not. Maybe I deserve this, or maybe I'm wrong, or you know, gaslighting and things like that, which are part of emotional abuse, are such a, you know, they really. I was going to say so a head fuck. So you you don't well, quite trust yourself. Doesn't feel quite right, isn't it? So that's what <coughs> we were saying before that something doesn't feel right. Yeah. And somebody could absolutely say this could be domestic abuse. Somebody could say, no, that's not domestic abuse. Mm. Or somebody could say it definitely is. But ultimately, this person is saying, isn't it, that actually I feel uncomfortable with this. Yeah. This has set off a little alarm bell in my head. 
And what we would always say to somebody that if you have got that uncomfortable feeling, this doesn't feel quite right, you're not sure to be thinking about other areas of your life as well um, and how you're feeling about that relationship generally. Because if it is domestic abuse, potentially you'll be noticing other things as well when you really start to think about it. Yeah, and you're right, isn't it? It's about the broad, like, how often is this happening? Has this happened, is this once every five years? It's probably not emotional abuse. It's just your partner being a complete dickhead for whatever, (laughs) you know. But if it's happening more frequently than that, and also how are you feeling when it happens? Are you feeling confused, afraid? Are you then not going out as a result because you don't, you know, if you're then changing your behavior as a result of, of this, then, then, you know, that's emotional abuse because you're now scared to go out or you don't want to go out or the part, your partner's beginning to isolate you using the puppy as, as leverage for that, you know. It's the beginning of that pattern of co- what we call coercive control. Yeah. And when we talk about coercive control, because there's often this sort of this this stereotypical question people ask, does your partner try and control what you wear? That seems to be the kind of question everybody mm. asks. So you could say, well, actually, if you you think of a scenario where you're, you know, your partner says to you, you're not going out dressed like that. Oh, am I being coercively controlled because potentially that's what coercive control looks like yeah isn't it but actually we do have to understand the dynamics around that the context around that and the and the pattern it's having because your partner may well be saying to you you're not going out dressed like that but if you're shrugging your shoulders and going out anyway yeah and there's no repercussion for that it's not such a bigger problem as somebody that's completely changing their behavior. They're not going out. They're going to get changed. They're becoming isolated from their friends because this is happening every single time they try to go out. There's a problem with what they wear. So it's really important to be thinking about, we always say context and pattern. Um, they're the two biggest, biggest things, but also the impact that it's having. So yeah. are we seeing a change in behavior? Is this person changing their behavior? as a result of that so are they just not are they not going out anymore mm. are they becoming isolated uh, because of that so they, it's really really important that context pattern and that impact that it, that it's having on somebody can we talk a bit about because uh, about pet abuse i had such a strong reaction when i did the the stories and it was such good training that you put on a, a, around that um so what are some of the the ways in which pets and uh, domestic abuse kind of coexist where's the those lines well it's phenomenal isn't it I mean when you do that training it's just a one-hour awareness session and we really kind of only skim the surface with it but pet abuse so generally um if we think about sort of as as we were growing up in films that we watched generally some form of animal abuse has often appeared um in big psychopaths stories, films, there's always been sort of some sort of element we hear about children that tortured small animals, perhaps um, strangled a cat, for instance, those sorts of elements. But it's it's always been linked to some sort of element of perhaps future violence, the probability of future violence. Serial killers. Serial yeah. killers, exactly, sort of psychopaths and serial killers. Um, but nobody had ever really done any real work around actually the links with domestic abuse uh, because domestic abuse is a slightly different context to to the violence that we perhaps see or or abuse with that's been serial killers or psychopaths so with pet abuse um, what we see 
is often, um, and it's incredibly sad, really, because we see often um, it being a sign that abuse could be occurring. So like with that previous uh, question, sometimes it's a red flag because in over 50% um, of cases of domestic abuse, the pet, if there is a pet in the home, will be being abused as well. Mm. But often this is a behaviour that we have seen um, through childhood, through adulthood, in a perpetrator of domestic abuse. So firstly, it's a kind of an indicator that could domestic abuse, a red flag that goes off. But also we know that pet abuse can also, experience pet abuse can lead somebody to perhaps go on to be a perpetrator of domestic abuse. So if we see so a child really who is uh, hurting animals, then our first instinct is normally shit this kid's going to grow up to be yes, Charles absolutely. Manson or Ted Bundy yeah. or whatever but actually our first instinct should be shit this kid's probably witnessed some kind of domestic violence yeah, at absolutely. home absolutely. and actually we need to intervene now because what we know is that they're very likely to go on to be abusive yeah there's such a, a strong should be a massive link. alarm bell in a child and like you say the go-to is for that to think they're going to go on to be a serial killer or something we kind of go off and very few people go yeah. on to, to, to be serial killers so we kind of miss a massive opportunity to think what could this experience for this child be in the home where are they seeing that mm. sometimes um, it's behavior that they're directly mimicking so it's something that they've seen sometimes it's about control because what they're learning and what they're living in is an environment where they feel very powerless. Um, and anybody that's feeling completely powerless will normally want to try and regulate themselves in some way to make them feel they've got some control over their orbit. And often um, that gets unleashed on something that's much more vulnerable than we are. And what's more vulnerable than a child. A pet is often smaller than the child. It's more vulnerable uh, than the child. They often get a reaction um, from the pet. Um, so it's really kind of makes sense when we start to dig around in that why potentially the pet could be at risk, but also it should be a massive, massive red flag um, if you see um, any kind of animal abuse um, coming from a, from a child towards a pet. Um, so we really urge schools to be thinking about that as well. Often schools now have animals, don't they, within them. You know, I know schools have got chickens and they've got hamsters and things, you know, and children are sort of taken, they take the pet home sometimes for, for a weekend or through the school holidays, rabbits, for instance. So it's really, really important that schools are perhaps picking up on that mm. um, and, and digging a little bit well. deeper. Vets as well, yeah. Uh, and apparently a lot of vets are trained actually to look out for um, signs of animal abuse and then and 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 actually linking that to absolutely domestic abuse because sometimes animals are abused a bit like the the, the one in 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 the question that was asked today you know uh, and you spoke about that in the training as well that there there might be instances where the partner threatens to hurt the pet or does hurt the pet by way of harming their partner so they, they might say i don't want you to go out if you yeah. do i'll kill the cat and they actually do kill the cat or whatever or beat the, the dog pet, or... the pet is used to control the victim <coughs> yeah so it's not so they're not necessarily um sort of abusing the pet in an out of control kind of anger state they're using the pet to control the victim so that's a, that would be an example of that wouldn't it by locking the pet or locking the puppy outside mm. every time she tries to go out without um her partner, so that would could be an example of, of the way somebody um, 
may try and control what somebody else does. I've, I've heard another case or worked with somebody on another case where um, they would repeatedly, before they went out with their friends, repeatedly let the dog, they lived on a main road, and let the dog out the front door. So you'd know that the dog would, firstly, the dog's going to run away. Secondly, the dog's at risk of getting run over mm. by a car on a main road. So this used to put the fear in her um, every time she kind of went out that the dog potentially could be at risk. So it wasn't even just potentially being locked out and being uncomfortable. The dog was significantly um, at risk of harm, mm. you know, if she if she went out with her friends and absolutely petrifying for somebody. But often somebody doesn't realise till quite late on that's happening. Often it will be the friends that think, of course, she's late again or... Um, They've cancelled again. That's mm. the third time they've cancelled. And often it, it will be the friends that notice the pattern before the victim themselves. Because why would you think if you were living in a relationship with somebody, somebody would be doing that on purpose? Yeah. You would never think that, would you? Mm. You know, it, it, often it will be somebody around around them that notices first before. And it's interesting because the, the, I can't remember what the statistic was. 51 or 56% of women in refuges um had stayed longer because of the potential yes. risks to pets they stayed they in abusive relationships longer because they knew that leaving they couldn't take the pet if they left because a lot of refuges you can't take pets um but that they felt they had to stay to, to make sure Absolutely. the pet wasn't harmed and i think it's over 80 percent as well have contemplated going back <coughs> because of the pet so where they've had to leave yeah um and they've, they've contemplated then going back because of because of the pet and they're worried about the pet and this is hor horrific for people that have to leave sometimes and do leave a pet behind mm. um you know for the sake of their own life or perhaps the life of their children uh potentially and that guilt is i mean you're a dog lover we we're saying i've got three dogs mm. and the thought of that just makes me feel uncomfortable just saying it you know well, the and, thought and of doing that and perpetrators will do things like you know you, you leave them and then they say well the dog's dying now and if yeah. you don't come back and pay i've got no money so you need to pay for this veterinary that treatment often draws them back yeah draws them back if the dog they say often a perpetrator will say the dog's unwell yeah um the dog um is at end of life for instance do you want to see the dog before the dog dies i mean that's that's quite a tough hard person mm. that i i've I can't even imagine yeah. what that's like, you know, for somebody, if somebody was to, to, to say that about my beloved dog and I mm. thought this could be the last time that I see them, absolutely horrific. Yeah. So whenever anyone ever says that it's easy, easy to leave those relationships and those situations, I think we can absolutely argue the opposite. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Speaking yes. of which. You tell them. <laughs> pet abuse is terrible. Um yeah, uh, I mean, as I say, my story, you can look at that on my story highlights um, if you want to know more about that. Are you going to be doing that training again? Because anybody yes. can access the training online through Eventbrite. Absolutely. So um, somebody can follow our Eventbrite page. They can search uh, on Eventbrite for that, but also visit our website. So www.alphavesta.com. And there's a direct link um, if they click at events in the menu. Um, there's a direct link. So we're running that workshop um, every month still. Yeah, every right. month. And Brilliant. the eating disorders as well uh, session. I, I would really recommend professionals um, 
to get onto these training courses. They're really good. They're great refreshers. I mean, most people who work with domestic abuse will understand the links between pet abuse um, and and domestic abuse. And, it, you know, it covers all, all of the areas, you know, for example, um, financial abuse um, can be used with pets. So, for example, the perpetrator might not give you the money for the vet's fees or might give you just enough money to decide to feed the dog or feed yourself or, you know, so, so financial abuse, sexual abuse, animals can be brought in to yeah. sexual situations, um, by perpetrators, bestiality, um, obviously physical abuse animals can be, you know, badly hurt and harmed, kicked, hit, whatever, whipped, um, God, what's that? Did and I? The emotional well. abuse. That's yeah, it. The yeah, threats, the emotional I abuse. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't even have to happen. So somebody, um, a perpetrator, perhaps talk about what they could do, mm. or you know, gosh, I, I hope I don't forget to feed, yeah. feed the dog uh, tonight while you're out, or um, gosh, I did forget to shut the door last night. I hope the dog doesn't get out mm. and, and run off again, or you know, so sort of these kind of little seeds, these insinuations, yeah, um, are, are sown, which is very much so. They haven't actually done anything. They haven't done anything, but there's that that kind of at the back of of the victim's mind. They're thinking, but they could, couldn't they? Mm. That's it's a very sort of um, sort of layered threat, isn't it? In many yeah. ways. And, and and it's on the um, the dash risk assessment. So if police get called to domestic abuse, and other other organisations use the dash as well, um, domestic abuse, stalking and stalking harassment. harassment risk assessment tool, and uh, and it's got a number of questions on it, like yeah. suicide. Has the person got any mental health problems? Do they use drugs and alcohol? Have you been strangled? Which we're going to come on to a question about that in a minute. Um, and pets is one of them. It is, and, and and that shows you really how crucial it is. And actually, if there is any pet abuse involved, then it does heighten risk, and it, and it should go straight to a Marac referral. Um, Absolutely. If they and answer, it's also yes. now, so just this year, because obviously, I, and I talk about it in the session, don't I? That <coughs> the Domestic Abuse Act has had so much attention, but mm. actually, there's been this quite a little bit of legislation that's been working its way through parliament incredibly quietly because nobody had heard of it which is actually the animal welfare act um and currently or preceding the animal welfare act that received royal assent uh, just in april this year um the sentencing um for harm to an animal was only a maximum of six months so we're looking at potentially a perpetrator even if whatever they do they're never going to get longer than six months um, if they've harmed a pet. And, and generally that means three months in prison mm. and three months out in the community. The next question says, I'm not going to do these in order and I've sent them to you, but I'm not because I think sometimes, I think maybe talking about this one next makes a bit more sense um, because we're talking about legislation. And, and, and the question says, why is it that strangulation isn't taken as seriously by people as being punched or hit? I'm surmising and kind of guessing that probably the person who asked this question may have experienced something like that and felt that their experience was minimised because they were strangled, non-vatal strangulation. Um, but strangulation is also one of the things on the police dash. It is. Because we know how high risk strangulation is. So it's interesting that this person feels that it's not taken as seriously. Do you see that? Often, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because, it, and certainly, it's a it's a it's a um, key sort of high risk indicator in the dash. So, strangulation, um, choking as well. Um, so, when we talk about 
strangulation. There's often a, a misunderstanding as well of what we mean when we're talking about strangulation. And an attempted strangulation, non-fatal strangulation, is actually somebody having their airway cut off. So for a period of time, they aren't able to breathe. Now, sometimes people think being perhaps pushed back against a wall by their neck or their chest is strangulation, but that's not strangulation. When we talk about non-fatal strangulation or choking, it's where the airway has been cut. So for, for a period of time, that person hasn't been able to breathe. And the reason that's a high-risk um, indicator um, in terms of domestic abuse is it's very, very much about control, mm. very much about power and control. So often we see and we talk about in all of our sessions the different dynamics uh, in terms of domestic abuse and violence. So sometimes we have a very out-of-control anger. Uh, it's often fueled by other things like mental health issues, substance misuse issues. But we also have um, very controlling perpetrators of domestic abuse. So they don't have a mental health issue necessarily. They don't need uh, substances to misuse substances to be abusive. They don't drink much alcohol. They're, it's all about control. So this form of violence um, isn't is very different to something like punching or hitting. It's all about control. Now, the problem with um, non-fatal strangulation is sometimes there's not always a mark. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. So it can be very, very difficult, firstly, to evidence. But the good news is that we that we have in terms of the Domestic Abuse Act is for the first time non-fatal strangulation is a criminal offence in yeah. itself. So it used to be, used to fit in the remit of common assault yeah. or ABH. Now, anybody that knows how the criminal justice system works, you kind of need to have quite a strong evidence base for common assault, ABH. You need to have a, a bruise, you need to have, otherwise often that case gets thrown out uh, of court. It doesn't even make it mm. to court sometimes. Um, but now for the first time, this non-fatal strangulation um, carries a sentence of up to five years. So again, a great new um, kind of advent or addition to current legislation uh, because often that was missed, massively missed. And I think um, there was a real misunderstanding of how dangerous that form of violence is when we look in terms of that overall pattern of control and power uh, and coercion as well. So I think that's that's hopefully that per that person has had that experience. Um, they can see that actually, though unfortunately those experiences have gone on mm. to change legislation now, uh, have, have gone on to do that and achieve that. Um, so that's really important. And I think the other element as well that builds into that is around consent as well. So sometimes you have certain um, kind of sexual activity that involves um, cutting off the airway and that, that may be consensual, but obviously it, it could be done in the context that that wasn't, there was no mm. consent. So they used to, we always, and I don't know whether anybody's seen it in the media, we, there was always this rough sex defence. Well, actually that's what they wanted. That's what yeah. they kind of wanted. Whereas now the burden of proof rests with the perpetrator to prove they had consent. So it's yeah. not on the victim to prove it anymore. Uh, if they're saying they didn't, didn't give consent, potentially it's now down to the perpetrator to prove that they did. So yeah. I think both of those sorts of two elements of the kind of the evidential side of it, the consent side of it, but also um, the increase in sentencing are really, really good kind of additions to have. Strangulation is one that you do really need to look out for because as you say, it is my fucking dog. What is wrong with you? I don't, she just, she keeps going in and out of the... Maybe she needs a chair to sit on. It's really, <laughs> really irritating because it's hard to concentrate with this dog crying in the background. Does she have her own chair? 
Well, she's she has had a chair when she sat here before. Oh, she's running away from the chair. I don't know what's wrong with her. She's been fed, she's been walked, she's done a wee, she's done a poo. Maybe it's the subject content. Maybe she doesn't yeah. like what we're talking oh, about. Oh, no, here we go, look. Here yeah. She thinks animal abuse is them abusing you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Oh, maybe that's what she wanted to check. Is that all you that wanted? So Some sweet. comfort? Jesus, she's so... <laughs> Pampered pooch, yeah. Papa princess. Right, there we go. She's settled now on this big chair. Okay. Yeah, strangulation and, and, and domestic abuse is so um, linked. One in six women who are murdered are murdered via asphyxiation. And, and the rate for men is minuscule compared to that. Uh, it's much, much less. Um, and 50% of people... 50% of women who are murdered by their partners had experienced some form of strangulation or choking in the year prior to the murder. So we really have to see strangulation as a huge risk Absolutely. factor. And it should be taken very, very seriously as an indicator that things could get really dangerous in the relationship. So if somebody is strangling you during physical fights, like you say, it can be harder to prove because sometimes there's no bruising, but you could lose your voice. I mean, Choking and strangulation has really serious consequences. It is the second uh, biggest cause of strokes in women under 40. Because, um, <coughs> you know, it's a, a really dangerous thing to do. And as you say, the whole sex thing as well, um, you, you know, the whole choking thing, consensual, non-consensual, but are you actually, you know, people who, because I've consented before in the past to people putting their people a person putting his hand around my neck during sex um and thought that yeah i'm supposed to and this is what people do in porn and all of that but can i really say if that i was consenting when at that time that i did consent i had no idea that it could lead to strokes to incontinence to blindness to vocal cord damage to spinal damage you know all of these things that can come as a result of choking, I didn't know. And if I'd have known all of that, I would have absolutely said, no, you can't do it. It's not for you to have a bit of a good time for the next seven minutes in bed. I'm not putting myself at this level of risk. So is it really consent if it's not informed? It's not informed consent. consent. No, and this is where it goes back to that importance to, to create this awareness and this grassroots training because people don't know. Yeah. People don't know, firstly, that they, they do have a choice in that but also the dangers that are associated with it, as you, which you've listed. Um, and and obviously often somebody is agreeing to sort of do something because they think that's the normal, that's what that person wants. And they might feel quite uncomfortable about it um, often, but they just think that's what other people are doing. Mm. We see it sort of often with younger um, kind of relationships as well, with things like sexting. So that's often something that they just think, well, everyone else is doing it. Mm. I don't want to do it. Or naked, naked selfies, you know, that's what, well, that's what people do. But, but yet there is this uncomfortableness um, for them. And unfortunately, once people have started taking naked selfies and, and potentially they're, they're out there uh, on text messages, they're out there um, sort of in for anybody potentially to view, there's a big danger there for them that, that that's used for sort of other other purposes in yeah. many ways or used to control them in terms of actually I will release this picture or I will show this picture um without you know w w to, to whoever out on mm. social media but but they've 
kind of given their consent because they've sent it to them. Yeah. It's not been a picture that's been taken, you know, by somebody through a spy hole. Mm. They've actually, they've sent them the picture. Um, so it's really important that 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 youngsters, particularly, you know, as they're sort of embarking on on their uh, those early relationships of in their late teens, they understand the repercussions as well of some of these things and not be afraid to question um, that that doesn't feel right for me. Yeah. Um, and know the dangers potentially with some of these these activities. I think this leads really nicely onto the next question, which is about the crossover between BDSM, which is bondage, domination, sado masochism or so it could be people use the words interchangeably i think it's bondage domination submission yes i've seen that as and masochism. well yeah. so i think it but but it all means the same thing basically um sex which is about power control sometimes uh acts that cause physical pain um but always consensual um I mean, the person didn't actually give any kind of much more than that. They just said they wanted to discuss the crossover between BDSM and domestic abuse. And and I think that it is, there's a real thin line in some relationships. And I, and I think that some very clever abusers can convince partners, this isn't domestic abuse, this is BDSM, this is kink, this is... Um, do, do you know much about have you have you done yeah absolutely and we we would often see this in the context of not just domestic abuse but other sexual violence sort of crimes as well and and obviously it's it there is a crossover i will say there is absolutely a crossover that sits with in terms of that power and that dominance and the, that that control but that is not by any way to suggest that everybody that engages with BDSM is going to be a domestic abuse perpetrator or domestic abuse victim and vice versa. So we would never, ever be uh, suggesting that. But there are some crossovers and and the crossovers tend to sit in terms of this idea of dominance and this idea of control. And potentially when somebody can stop that and can they stop that? So what we see, and I think if we think back, um, not just to BDSM, but if we think back to Sarah Everard, and the death of Sarah Everard. Um, If we remember the police officer that was convicted of her murder um, a few weeks, months before, had been arrested for flashing, hadn't he? So often what we find is some of these um, sexual offences, increases in pornography, increases um, in desire, in carrying out um, certain fetishes, fetishes increase when somebody is spiraling when a perpetrator is spiraling so for me the question is always when we consider somebody that's sort of engaging in bdsm is does that person stop when you say stop because obviously bdsm is all about being safe and consensual when that person when you want that person to stop do they stop Hmm. potentially because if they don't that's when we start to veer into an area where somebody values that power and that dominance and that control much more uh, than anything else uh, about that relationship. So there is that crossover, and I think it's just for people to be aware. Um, it's very much, and it's like with addiction, isn't it, sometimes as well, um, when we think of substance misuse. Often the key factors around that, you know, somebody might say, well, I have a glass of wine every day. Does that mean I've got a problem? Well, no, can you stop after mm. one? Can you go a day without, you know, doing that? But potentially somebody that is potentially spiralling, has got a lot of issues around uh, dominance and control generally, won't stop 
when you want them to stop because that's the danger um, of somebody that that is potentially on this kind of route for for crisis and we see unfortunately a lot of the, that sort of sexual activity prior to a really high risk incident sometimes a fatal incident as mm. well sadly it's interesting because 50 shades of gray <coughs> is the thing that really kind of bought I, is, I think most yeah. people who are involved in BDSM wouldn't look at, at 50 shades of gray and think that it represented their community in any way, shape, or form. It was a kind of, you know, it, it, what's the, it was a very sort of twee, but also pretty fucking destructive because actually what it depicts is this like aspirational, controlling, abusive relationship. You've got this billionaire who takes this young student like out of her normal life and then controls absolutely everything from when she eats to how often she shaves to her contraceptives to everything. Um, and women see it as this kind of kinky, hot, like, you know, submitting to your partner entirely. But actually there were just so many red flags w within that. Uh, and, and one of those red flags is that it just, it doesn't turn off. And I think that's the thing about BDSM is that, I mean, it can become a lifestyle, um, but but also it's not you're not constantly in a situation if, if you're constantly being dominated yeah. th you know you have to be able to have these boundaries where you can also come back to being yourself and come back to making your own decisions and being able to set your own boundaries if you feel like you have to submit to someone entirely under the guise and change your of mind BDSM, occasionally I, yeah. just, I don't want to do that now I don't want to do that anymore and for somebody that wants to be in, in power and control that's not okay mm. They don't, you don't question that. They'll make that decision, not exactly. you. And that's where that line. Well, is, that is the line, drawn. isn't it? That the, 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 the distinction between BDSM and domestic violence is consent. And for it to be true, healthy BDSM, um, consent has to be at the heart of that. And, and actually a proper BDSM practitioner is not going to go into a sexual situation and just be like, I'm going to fucking fuck your ass. And sorry, I'm being a bit explicit here, but. <laughs> You know, there is a difference. Yeah. You know, um, they're not doing it. I want to fucking hurt you and you've got no choice. It's more, it'll be a very planned thing. You know, if you're having BDSM proper kink sex, everything would have been arranged in advance. There'll be plans. You will know exactly what acts are going to be done in this session and, and, what, and what neither of you like. So I know that some people use the five-point checklist. So you might have... <coughs> Number five are the things you like. So you're into um, slapping, but zero uh, might be um, you don't like choking. So if you've got five for slapping and zero for choking, then that partner in that session knows where the boundaries are. They know that they can go down the hitting route or whatever with your consent. But you would also have safe words um, and, and, and a level of trust and respect, mutual respect that would mean that your partner you know that the second that you do the safe word or the safe gesture, your partner is going to stop. Um, and anything outside of that is just rough sex and violent sex and degradation. Um, if they, if if you your boundaries are being pushed, if there isn't proper planning, if there isn't consent, if there isn't real safety and respect at the heart of it, it is it's a it's just abuse. Yeah. And remember our, our core sort of sort of things that we're thinking about with coercion and control and domestic abuse is about that context. It's about that pattern, but it's also about that impact it's having. So how is that person feeling afterwards? Mm. Are they feeling violated? Are they feeling degraded? Or actually, no, that 
that's okay. I'm happy with that. Yeah. I'm happy with that. I'm comfortable with that. Or is there this uncomfortable feeling there that they yeah. just feel that that degradation and, and, and violation? Um, and that's really, really important when we consider. And sometimes people aren't sure, is this domestic abuse or is this not domestic abuse? So I always urge people to be thinking about context, pattern and impact in terms of guiding their, their kind of how they're feeling about that and how comfortable they are. I think the problem is that BDSM and, and um, you know, it gets co-opted. It, it, legitimate, it gives people who want to hurt women legitimacy. Yes, and it can, you know, it can all be very confusing because women and especially young women see all these images on social media and in porn and things like that of these women taking really rough and violent, very painful stuff. It's just on the front page of mainstream porn and so you know in, in some ways nowadays it's not even that shocking if a guy just chokes you during first time sex it's not even that shocking if they pull your hair or slap your bum or whatever um because it's become so normalized that we just think well this is okay um and then if you complain there's often what happens is this kind of vanilla shaming so, oh, well, you're not up there. Well, my ex was really freaky. My ex was really kinky. Oh, you don't like that. And so women or, or young people then um, aspire to do things that they don't want to do just because they feel like they have to meet this kind of sexual bar for freakiness. Um, when actually a lot of what these people are doing to you is not freaky. It's not kink. It's it's nasty. It's violent. It's degrading. They want, they're, they're not interested in giving you any sexual pleasure whatsoever. They don't want to engage in anal play because of the pleasure that it's going to bring you. They want to do it because they want to ram a cock up your heart, you know. And I we're want in to this dominate, kind of, yeah. want to dominate, want to control. And hurt. But you'll see that in other aspects of their life. As well. <coughs> Remember, we're always thinking about context, yeah. aren't we? So it's going to be occurring in other contexts as well. We're going to see other patterns about the way they behave. So I think it's interesting what you say with Fifty Shades of Grey, isn't it? That it, it wasn't just about the bedroom, was it? Yeah, it never it was about it, it, was all, it was about other aspects of her life as well. Mm. Um, and that's what we have to kind of think. I, I, read, I read all three books, but I haven't watched the film. I don't know why. I just mm. There was something about I didn't want to watch the film. Yeah, it's it's had a lot of, you know, on one on the one hand, that film kind of opened up a lot of women to feel a, a bit like actually I maybe I am interested in different things and um, maybe it is acceptable for women to have fantasies and to talk to our friends about that and you know, but on the other hand, I think it normalised um, things in a way. You know, because BDSM, so there's no harm in it actually, um, and 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 there's been loads of research that said that there are because I think a lot of people assume that if you are into BDSM, you've probably had some trauma, you've probably had some violence in your background, um, and I would have assumed that too. But there's been loads of research done that says some people just like get really high off the physical sensations. Um, <coughs> you know, some people will go into it. After, lots of people after rape and trauma experiment with BDSM because it kind of puts them back in control. There can be something about reliving painful experiences that puts you back in control. Um, but but BDSM doesn't necessarily come from a fucked up place or a place no. of trauma. Sometimes it's just something that people want to explore. But if you're going to explore that, you can't just do that with Dave who learned it off Pornhub. You know what I mean? Because it's it's not right if you're going to start exploring those things, you have to then go into that BDSM world and really meet the rules of consent, respect, honesty, planning, safety planning, 
Um, it's really unfortunate my husband's name's Dave, though. <laughs> oh, I'm that. so sorry, Dave. <laughs> I should have said Gary. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Lucy hasn't told me anything about what you did. <laughs> what happened after she read Just Fifty Shades? I thought, um, am I going to say anything? <laughs> He's going to be like frantically removing his Google search history now. Sorry, Dave. Sorry to your kids if they're listening as well. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think that you know, BDSM is specialist. And if you want to go, if you want to explore, do it. But do it with someone who knows what they're doing or both explore that together and learn from masters and people who know what they're doing. Don't just go in sexual situations, gagging and tying up and choking. There has to be a plan with it. And people need to know what what they're doing, what they want, what they're comfortable with. Um, Because if it's just happening ad hoc like that and there isn't those boundaries, the boundaries and consent become very blurred. um, And that can become incredibly... Yeah. dangerous if somebody starts to feel frightened start to feel really out of control yeah um really kind of incredibly frightening for them yeah um, but also to be really aware of those risks around somebody that doesn't there might be those boundaries in place but they don't they seem to be pushing them all the time seem to be trying to push them to the next yeah. level they don't seem to be able to stop when you're saying stop they don't they don't stop because yeah. they just want to put and it, and it will be very very subtle it will just be a little bit of a push just a little bit you know pushing it a little bit further a little bit further all the time and before you know it somebody is kind of engaging in something they they actually didn't want to do that's not mm. what they set out to do but it happened so slowly yeah they didn't really realize um what was happening but there's that real there's that impact there's uncomfortableness and that impact for them sexual stuff really is um very prevalent in in abusive relationships um rape is. is common in relationships and doing things because you're frightened that your how your partner might react or that you feel you have to do it to please them um all of those things are very uh, uh, abusive and can be the hardest to talk about um again that comes up in the dash risk assessment about sexual stuff and 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 nearly every dash risk assessment that i ever saw said no to the sexual stuff and then when you would question for professionals to ask when when you you would ask poor police officers coming into that environment and asking that that question is really it's not an easy question to ask and it's interesting because the 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 question before that um, is around the choking mm. and the strangulation. And often people and, and sort of don't realise they're actually quite intrinsically linked. They are. People always have, they t- call it question 19, which is the question around sexual violence. Um, but you don't actually, they don't actually realise your, your, your question 18 before that is actually building yeah. to that question. They kind of almost see the strangulation choking is completely separate to sexual violence, whereas actually we know they are and can be quite intrinsically linked and people would i would often see the police merlins um would say no to sexual violence and then you'd build a relationship with the with the woman and actually it would turn out he'd been raping her in front of the kids for years um but it's embarrassing it feels it's it's that one thing where you i I think it's the hardest thing i mean i think a lot of people feel a lot of shame in disclosing domestic abuse and and feel a lot of shame in talking about what's what they've been through um and then the sexual stuff kind of is that last layer of yeah it's a humiliation for somebody and if you think about you know the way domestic abuse manifests you you could have a 16 17 year old right up to somebody in their (coughs) 70s going to be asked that question yeah and you know when we think (coughs) about that age spectrum we think about different cultures 
different belief systems that have different kind of understandings of, of, of sex in many different ways, incredibly um, difficult question for people to ask, for, for, for <coughs> professionals to ask, but also for that victim to answer and, and truthfully. And sometimes they don't, um, re somebody doesn't realise that there is an element of sexual control there. So somebody may feel... For instance, you know, feel pressure to have sex because mm. their partner sulks if they don't, or that is a form of control. It's not necessarily met that threshold for a criminal kind mm. of conviction for rape or sexual assault. But what that's telling us is something about the patterns of control in this relationship that 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 person feels uncomfortable. Um, they can't say no to that person yeah. at all. Um, but obviously, very, very difficult to to prove, isn't it, for somebody? Oh, how are you going to How are you going to prove your partner's been emotionally pressurised? Have him? that in in society where I mean, it is rape if your husband has sex with you whilst you're sleeping, yeah, or your husband forces himself upon you when you're saying no, I really don't want or gets to. Gets you drunk, yeah, gets you drunk. Or makes you feel like you're about to be violently attacked if you don't say no, if you don't say yes to sex. All of those things are rape, regardless of whether you're married or not. But you know, the society and culture is we're still not there yet. That you still hear people say, "But that's her boyfriend. That's her husband. Come on, you know." Um, like there's just this implied consent that your body belongs to your man permanently once you've decided for him, you know, to be to be your partner. Um, and I think, and, th and that's the thing, is that we, these cultural attitudes really have an impact on victims because then they minimise what's happening to them. They might feel terrified every time their husband gets into bed, but because they know that people are like, oh, come on, that's your man, you know, give it up, it won't last long or whatever. They minimise that pain um, and it keeps them there longer. It does, completely. Another interesting one that somebody asked about was spiritual abuse, using God or religion to coerce and control. Yeah, this is quite interesting because I know when I sort of have done training before, people wonder why spiritual and religious abuse isn't one of the main forms of domestic abuse. Mm. But in actual fact, it, it sits within emotional and psychological abuse. So this is what, so it is there, but it's just not there in, it, in, in its entirety on its own. Um, I think religious and spiritual abuse is, is absolutely enormous uh, when we think about the, the sort of spectrum of different cultures, but the, but the range of which, um, the range of ways in which somebody may be being abused in terms of a religious cultural uh, context. You know, somebody may be prevented from um, worshipping in their own, uh, you know, their own, their religion, prevented from their children, um, you know, worshipping in that, in that religion. They may be um, governed in terms of what their dress is, you know, they may be forced to wear certain clothing or not wear certain clothing because of religion. Some people are, are forced into some element of financial abuse where they will give money potentially um, to, to a religious organisation. They feel guilt tripped almost into giving it uh, to, to, to that organisation. So the, the spectrum of, of religious and spiritual abuse is, is absolutely uh, enormous. It's quite a fascinating area and it's not an area that, that people often know much about unless they kind of work in that field. You think, well, how, how will somebody be abused then in the context mm. of religion? And But there's so many different ways. Well, it does. I've seen it so many times and it's, um, you know, the ways in which they can do it is, they can behave in certain ways and say that Satan made them do it. I've seen yeah. that before. They've, you know, every time they they 
rape or hurt their wife, um, you know, they go through this shaky remorse thing and afterwards would say, Satan took over my body, that was me, you know. Or they will, I've, I've seen it before where they do it the other way around, that the, their partner is possessed by Satan, their partner or, or not necessarily Satan because yeah. I've seen it in lots of different uh, but even ways. God, even God, you know, <coughs> God, I've been chosen by God, yeah, and potentially this is what God has asked me to do, yeah, and and that sort of isn't isn't kind of questioned by can't anybody. Can't challenge it, can't, can't, yeah. you know, it can't be questioned. It's not going to be challenged because they, if it is, there will be massive repercussions, yeah, as a result of that. And when a lot of religions um, are very steeped in gender roles and are still quite archaic in terms of you know man being head of the family and those kind of structures as well. Um, so in some ways, it kind of really, it really, feed, you know, being a part of a very strict religion can really feed into to that feeling of. Um, submitting to your man, honouring and obeying. Um, and it can be very hard to leave because, you know, if you know, faith is incredibly important and to a lot of people um, and the church is really important and it might be such a big part of your community and, and often women will go to... Uh, to that community or that to that church for help to say you know this is happening in my relation in my relationship and um and because of the religion those people will do everything they can to keep that marriage together everything they can for that for that person to stay rather than suggesting leaving because the sanctity of marriage is so important you yeah. can't leave it because your man's abusing you or they will re refuse to see that the, the the perpetrator is even abusive because he's a man of god you know it's particularly yeah. challenging if you're dating the rabbi or the priest or the imam um or somebody who's got quite a good standing within the community he's a man of god he would never do that um you must be crazy uh and then you see that often which is that the woman then is almost shunned by the community because she's making these awful statements about this wonderful man um I think it very much, you know, cultural and sort of religious belief systems, they, they link so closely to community. Mm. So we see, you know, generally in the, when we think about domestic abuse, any um, kind of strong culture and belief system has the potential for some form of abuse if there's repercussions for going against the mm. grain, if you like. And um, the barriers are enormous for somebody that's experiencing domestic abuse in that context because sometimes they then are excluded from that whole community. Mm. That's not just, you know, if you think how hard it is just when we're, we're, we're managing and dealing with a perpetrator, a partner or a family member, but but sometimes they have to move away from that whole community, that whole kind of the life that they've known in order to break free of that is absolutely um, enormous. And I, I know we've got a, a member in our, um, we have a very strong survivors symposium attached to our work where we, we sort of talk to different survivors about different different topic um, areas. And one of our members um, particularly um, came from a very, very strong cultural and religious uh, kind of community. And um, she tried for years to kind of um, progress a divorce but she was constantly being pushed back by her family you know because marriage is for life yeah marriage is for life you you know you you made your you made your decisions this is what you do you commit to this for life and and when she finally um bless her met um a, a fantastic solicitor had a fantastic solicitor um you know, this solicitor just held her, held her by the hands and said, you know, are you ready for this? Because she said, this isn't, this isn't just divorcing your partner. This is divorcing your community. This is divorcing 
your life there's there's kind of almost no way back from that and that's enormous mm. for somebody isn't it that they've 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 not just got to sort of deal with with the abuse from that perpetrator but it's that whole community and everything sometimes that they've ever known the barriers are absolutely enormous for somebody so you know religious religion culture belief systems feed in very very closely and sit in and around domestic abuse in quite complex ways as you know because you've done the complexity session yeah yeah <laughs> i know everything yeah, um, <laughs> no it, it does make it especially hard and i and i would say try to get impartial advice outside of the church or outside of your whatever it is, the, the spiritual organisation yeah. or community that you're within, try to get it from someone like Women's Aid or one of the other uh, big charities because um, it can be, like you say, there is this real pressure to stay, there is this real pressure to go to couples counselling or whatever, which is the Make worst thing. Yeah, well, you can never send um, people who are in domestically abusive relationships to couples counselling because that suggests there's a problem with the couple, not a problem with the perpetrator. Um <coughs> and perpetrators don't change through couple counselling. It just never Or mediation, strangely no. enough. <coughs> they rarely they don't there's not even any evidence that they change from actual perpetrator programmes. In fact, the evidence seems to show that perpetrator programmes are likely to increase offending because uh, they learn new techniques and they learn what people are looking for and they learn how to uh, use the key buzzwords to professionals. Um so you know, actually, you, it's it's leaving. It's being you know with in a safe way, but but yeah, we can't expect these people to change. But spiritual abuse really is 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 a thing, and it can it doesn't have to come from a partner. Actually, spiritual abuse can actually be done by whatever church family. you're. It can yeah. be done by family. It can also be done in churches. You know, extorting money from people, as you said. Did you see Honor the TV program? No. Honor? That's that was fantastic. That's a true story. If you if you catch well, that, honour-based violence is honor a based, real honour-based violence. I want to do a podcast on family. that. Actually. Absolutely um, amazing, absolutely amazing program and in, an insight and in how stuff got missed. But the the fear and I mean, she still lives um, in exile from that that community because there was no going back because the whole community, you know, were on the lookout for her. There was, <coughs> there was threats threats of death and um absolutely and it happens you know honor-based violence honor-based killings is where people justify murdering or harming members of their family because they have shamed the family or shamed or gone against the religion in some way usually it'll be a girl dating somebody who's from outside of their religion or outside of what their parents were expecting her to marry uh and um yeah, and, and they believe that that brings shame to them and the only way to sort of repair that is to, to kill or harm And homosexuality, sometimes yeah. that's a big, big um, kind of um, area in sort of around honour-based abuse as well, yeah. um, where certain cultures and belief systems don't acknowledge, frown upon homosexuality. So that's a, that's a big, big area as yeah. well. Yeah, I definitely, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try and get someone in to do a podcast on, on that specifically. Yeah. Um, Eating disorders. What is the link between eating disorders and domestic abuse? Where do you want me to start? Well, you see, I know because, <laughs> you know. Um, let's start. Yeah. So so eating disorders covers bulimia, binge eating, anorexia, 
sort of anything. There's there's other ones around that, isn't there? And RFID as well and OSFID. So they're they're kind of, um, we we tend to have a sort of bit of a narrative around, like we have with domestic (coughs) use really, don't we, with eating disorders that around anorexia nervosa. So that is somebody that has, it's it's generally all about weight and shape. They've got quite a distorted um, image of their body, uh, for instance. But um, there are a variety of other uh, eating disorders as well. There are much more about sort of a negative association with food, a negative association <coughs> with meal times, uh, perhaps that we explore uh, in that session, uh, particularly. Um, because what we find um, is eating disorders sit again around um, domestic abuse in really complex ways. So, so certainly um, an experience um, that somebody has in childhood of domestic abuse can often lead to quite complex ways in terms of them trying to regulate like when we talked about the uh, impact of pet abuse so trying to regulate control some way feel they've got some power over something and often eating when they eat what they eat how they eat is one of the very very few ways in which they feel they have some level of control over quite a powerless uh, existence do you know what's interesting as well i did some other training uh, a while ago on sexual abuse the links between sexual abuse and eating yeah. disorders and they were talking about the the actual differences in brain like you can do an mri scan on the brain of somebody who's experienced significant trauma we have small t trauma and big t trauma so we've all been through some type of trauma but sometimes you have very significant trauma, particularly in childhood, and and that really changes the, the brain, re, really rewires your brain. And one of the things that can happen, um, you know, when you're being sexually abused at any age uh, as a child, um, you go into that detachment and disassociation. Yeah. And what that can do is it can mess around with your natural cues for things. So... Um, you know, we talk about our guts and how important our guts are and our stomachs and that in terms of, um, and the connection to our brains. And and actually being in that disassociative state can mean that your cues for hunger, your cues for yeah. thirst, your cues for being too full can go completely off track. And that can be another one of the things. Yeah, that's for something we see in a condition called ARFID. So it's where somebody doesn't um, seem to even acknowledge when they're hungry. They've lost that that touch with that, you know, that in touch with their body is actually when I'm hungry, um, often distress around eating, anxiety around eating. Uh, the kitchen, interesting, we talk about that in the session, don't we? Um, the kitchen is a very high risk area of the home when we consider domestic abuse. So often a lot of domestic abuse incidents happen in the kitchen. We spend a lot of time in the kitchen. There's a lot of things to pick up and throw. There's a lot of weapons in the kitchen, such as knives and different objects. And this often generates an anxiety around mealtimes generally. Um, So somebody you'll often find, you know, a child growing up in that home or even a victim living within that home. Uh, We repeatedly sort of see episodes of a perpetrator perhaps slamming the plate of food on the floor, throwing it against the wall. A lot of this stuff's happened in the kitchen and it creates a real anxiety. So you can imagine around mealtimes and that becomes habit forming. Um, so we see big, big issues around that um, and somebody losing a lot of weight because they're not eating properly. But conversely, perhaps putting on a lot of weight where they're not um, eating a sort of regular meals, they're perhaps eating on the on the hoof, you know, perhaps having McDonald's or having fast food because they're trying to avoid 
that that kind of mealtime scenario. Mm. So it's really important. We remember eating disorders aren't just being about very thin, nor are they always about being very big. So some, somebody that has a, a disordered eating pattern is, is what we're looking out for. Somebody that's uncomfortable eating around other people, doesn't seem to want to eat within their home, doesn't seem to have a lot of control around food, um, and certainly massive, massive links. I- interestingly, what you were saying around trauma, um, because there's often a little bit of a um, with both of the nervosa conditions as well, with with wanting that to purge that food, so perhaps eating a lot and then purging, being sick. There's the, in that sort of trauma understanding we have of trauma. There's quite a lot of psychological symbolism there, isn't there? Mm. That actually eating a lot in turn we talk about comfort eating don't we fills that void where somebody is unhappy they're uncomfortable they're lonely they're isolated so eating gives them some respite from that doesn't it it, it kind of fills it's that void isn't it absolutely yeah. whereas that purging cycle can often seen as a way of kind of getting rid of something unwanted you know mm. something i don't like about myself so we see kind <coughs> of a psychological symbolism with domestic abuse and, mm. and eating disorders and we know logically, don't we, we can't fill a void by eating a load of chocolate and we can't necessarily um, feel cleaner or happier if we empty our stomachs, you know, through a purging cycle. But but what it does is give someone some temporary respite for, for those feelings that they've got, um, just even for 10 minutes, yeah. 15 minutes, it gives them some respite. So um, it's really important, as we said... Often as well, um, eating disorders, we see the link um, with substance misuse. So there's quite a strong prevalence rate with um, uh, dom- domestic abuse, eating disorders and substance misuse as well. Um, with male victims, it's higher uh, than female victims as well. So often what that's telling us is that potentially um, a, um, a male with um, an eating disorder is very likely to have a substance misuse issue, uh, but also with, with females as well. We see sort of um, often um, substance misuse around steroids yeah. as well, which we talk about in the in the session. So steroid misuse, um, again, been very closely linked with sexual abuse i would say outright if you are dating someone and you find and you're in the early stages and you find out they're on steroids go leave but run to me is no great areas steroid use is really it the, the propensity for violence anger aggression completely irrational behavior is so high on steroids it really fucks them up um and, and it's interesting because, you know, I never really thought about the link between steroids and eating disorders. I mean, men on steroids yeah. generally have eating disorders. Yeah. If your man is taking steroids... dysmorphia, body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia, yeah. yeah. Meal prepping, um, you know, looking at the macros in every restaurant that he's going to, won't eat outside of what he's meal prepping. You know, that's an eating disorder. That real restriction and control over all of that... Um, and, 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 you know, and if that leads to steroid use, then steroids and domestic abuse are just so, they, They're they go so hand in hand. And it's frightening. It's frightening. Very and I think once somebody is misusing steroids, there's no easy way out of that no. because often they will take things like opioids to counteract the, the kind of adrenaline stuff that the steroid, mm. um, steroids have so they can sleep, so they can feel calmer. But those drugs have repercussions yeah. of violence and, and, and anxiety and agita- agitation. And, and, so and, even and coming off of 
coming trying to come off of steroids or counteracting the use of steroids yeah. is a is a problem and the man is so strong that actually you know it's you're in real serious danger um steroids is a, is such a, a a red flag um but i think also what's interesting is the whole <coughs> narcissistic abuse i think a lot of people who experience eating disorders may have grown up with um narcissistic parents parents who had put a lot of pressure on yeah. how they look parents who are deeply concerned about how they look and how their child reflects them so they don't want a fat kid or a kid that embarrasses them um so they'll spend a lot of time you know oh are you sure you should be eating that oh that looks a bit tight for you you know so there'll be this constant drip drip from your narcissistic parent about how you look and what you eat and so you can a, a lot of people can end up going down the eating disorder route um that way uh it's very linked to anorexia both of the nervosa conditions anorexia it's very linked whereas arfid is more about association and sensory kind of that experience that negative negative kind of trauma yeah whereas um often anorexia there's there's very strong links with perfectionism which obviously we know sits within that context of somebody that likes to control, yeah. uh, likes that that power and control. There's often that element of perfectionism. So as we say eating disorders sits, correlates so closely to domestic abuse when we consider the, the victim, yeah. the perpetrator, but also the children yeah. as well. And, and what that, that, that sometimes their experience of domestic abuse can go on and lead to an eating disorder. So it, it really sits sort of um, incredibly closely. I think as well, if you're somebody who's who's had an eating disorder and you're in recovery, you have to be really careful about the people that you get into relationships with because somebody with those narcissistic tendencies or somebody who wants to neg you, um, you know, to question what you're eating or make you feel like you're, you've put on weight or any of those things, they're going to be detrimental to your recovery. Um, and <coughs> telling people that you've had an eating disorder, um, I mean, it's really important and you should, shouldn't, it's not something you should hide in relationships, but I think you need to be really careful about, you know, making sure that you're not dating people who are going to use that against you. Yeah, it's a weapon. That vulnerability is really easily exploited uh, by abusers. Um, so there's so many links and, and it's something that I think people should, you know, look up and, and learn more about if they... Yeah, if this is a subject, they're not. And again, it's like with the with pets, isn't it? As well, sometimes the eating disorder can be an indicator, and not everyone that experiences domestic abuse will go into develop an eating disorder, and not everyone that has an eating disorder is in a domestically abusive relationship. But somewhere there should be, it's, it's often sitting there, yeah. And and that can often be an indicator, a red flag, just to dig a little bit deeper, not to go around making insinuations, but just to dig a little bit deeper mm. into how that that person may be experiencing life at the moment. Um, I'm going to ask two more questions. We've been going for a long time, but I cut. These are two separate questions, but I kind of want to answer them together to make okay. sure that we get um get through this all. <coughs> Uh, so one of them says that how to respond when a neighbour is being abused. We called the police, but they did nothing, and she confronted us about it. He continues to beat her. And then the second question is, I think my colleague is experiencing domestic violence and is isolated outside of work, but the company doesn't want to get involved and reach out unless she says something first. How do I get them to help, if at all? And failing that, what can I do as a colleague? I know they're quite different nature but I wanted to conflate them because they're about 
we know somebody or we think somebody is is being harmed. Yeah, they absolutely. don't seem to want our help. What do we do? So if we look at the neighbour one, the neighbour sort of scenario first, and it's <coughs> often somebody will say the police did nothing, but often, but I would jump to the defence of the police often because what we have with domestic abuse is is a very very difficult situation at times where we can't always evidence a crime has been committed. So whilst the, whilst the police will always attend an emergency incident, whether there's a threat to life, significant risk of harm, whether they can then take any further action will be largely down um, to whether they can evidence a crime mm. has been committed. So what can they see in that scenario? Uh, is the victim denying that potentially? So we have a, a number of challenges. So the fact that the police, you know, can't do anything isn't necessarily the, the police's fault. That's the first yeah. thing that I would say about that. I um, think she needs to keep ringing the police. If yeah. you hear that, you know, she can tell the police to fuck off every time um, that they arrive, but I don't think you'd be able to live with yourself if you no. could hear something going on and you didn't call the police and it resulted in murder. We so always, just call every time. Absolutely. I would say you always, always, if you are concerned that somebody, if there's a threat to life or a significant risk of harm, you should always contact the police yeah. on 999. They're the only people that can respond. Even if it's just, when we say the police can't aren't going to do anything, well, potentially they did because they turned up and stopped yeah. whatever it was that was occurring at that, at that moment. Whether that case progresses through whether the, the perpetrator gets arrested or yeah. convicted we've managed to stop and, and sort of avert that injury the other thing i would say when we think about neighbors and, and friends and family is open as many windows and doors as possible for that mm. person you know to really open up to you to talk to you try and think about very non-judgmental language are you okay today i mean obviously there's it sounds like from that sort of case there's there's perhaps then an animosity between the neighbors yeah but try and be the bigger person yeah around that. And don't that take person, that person don't take that personally somebody that's experiencing domestic abuse somebody that's experiencing coercive control 50 percent of cases they won't even realize this is control so really try very hard not to take that personally just really have at the back of your mind if ever you are concerned about that threat to life that significant risk of harm keep on calling mm. uh, the police absolutely but also try to really open those windows and doors you know and check that they are okay ask them yeah. you know if things are okay um, to really kind of let them know you're there and even if they don't accept that help at that point um, they know that yeah. potentially you are there. Absolutely. And it's kind of similar with the with the colleague who they think is experiencing DV. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's yeah. just being there and saying, are you okay? Are you okay? How, are things How at can home? I help you? How can I help you at the moment? Again, opening as many windows and doors um, to, to really foster that real non-judgmental environment, creating safe spaces, orchestrating safe spaces, perhaps a meeting, a one-to-one, -one, something where you get that opportunity. So creating opportunities where they can open up to you. So, I mean, I think, so this organisation here, is saying I just want to say actually somebody contacted me when I said that I was going to do this podcast with you and they said that you had trained their organization yeah. and that um she was in a very abusive relationship and was physically attacked the day before she was supposed to start her new job um and because that her new employer had been trained by you guys they allowed her to delay her start they gave her oh, as much time as she needed hear. that's amazing to hear um they kept her job open for her uh, which meant yeah. that she was able to leave the relationship get herself together and is now in the job and, and doing really well but had that been a different type of employer there because she could have been in a situation where she 
lost the job and lost everything because of what he'd done to her. Um, so I think that really highlights the importance of organisations having clear DV Absolutely. policies in place and clear training. They need to know what they're Absolutely. looking for. And they can approach you, can't they? They can. That's what we're doing. That's, that's the majority of the work that we do is, is creating and, and delivering this very grassroots training um, to, applicable to all different workplaces, whether it's a, a local authority, whether it's a bank, whether it's a building society, an insurance uh, company or a retail outlet, um, really. So anywhere where we want to build that culture uh, of understanding. We've, we've actually just released um, a report today that's been driven uh, by members of our Survivors uh, Symposium on the Barriers for an employer uh, taking action around domestic abuse, um, which is on our website, uh, just been launched today, um, which is really, really interesting when we look at, at all of the different barriers for an employer, because it's really saying there that the, the the employer doesn't want to get involved. And I'd really urge them to read that article because domestic abuse is impacting everywhere. We know one in five adults are affected, one in five children are affected. So it's impacting on that workforce already. Mm. But often the stereotypes, the narratives we've got around it lead employers to think, well, I don't want to get involved. I might make it worse. Um, I don't feel equipped. Um, and we can we can manage to mediate all of those barriers and address all of those barriers with the work that we do. We don't ask employers to be experts mm. in it. You bring in us. We're the experts. That's what we do. But we do ask you to be aware, to be culturally aware, to be aware, to have empathy, to have understanding, to know when to call for help. The employer doesn't have to take this on themselves but it's really just about opening those windows and doors for that person affected um, because it means that the, the, the person themselves goes on to, to flourish but also so does the workplace and work is so important work is literally a lifesaver for Absolutely. for survivors and victims of domestic abuse it gives them their own it gives them somewhere that they can escape to uh it gives them their own finances so that they can prepare to leave if they need to or they just have options um it is it's incredibly important to keep women working um and and i think there are lots that employers can do but but i think it's right to be a bit cautious as employers um and not to just step in and especially don't do that on the phone or no. on uh computers because partners monitor things like that um so if you are going to have these conversations have them face to face but do ask and have a woman doing it if you can as well i wouldn't have a man sitting there unless the victim is a man or unless the victim has a really specifically close relationship with that person um but I would ask, I would say, what, what, how are things at home? And do you need yeah. any help you from okay? us? Is yeah. there anything we can do to make you safer? And I think <coughs> employers need to be really clear. I was talking to somebody the other day who was being stalked by their ex-partner. Um, and she worked in like, a, I'm not sure what kind of setting it was, like a shop setting, I think, where she was like by herself the majority of the time. So he or any of his cronies or whatever could have just come directly in there. And she said to her, uh, manager could we just have some cctv installed to make me feel safer could i change my working hours so that i'm leaving before it's dark all of these things just to make her a little bit safer Absolutely. and they didn't do any of them and they actually they acted like she was a headache and like this was stressful you know where where actually you you're going to get so much more out of your employee um and just small things that you can do to keep them there safe. Is. And we have the right to ask our employers for those things. And they should be giving them to us because actually employers are duty bound, I believe, to make sure that you're protected at work from third parties. That you're kept safe. Yeah, yeah. you're kept safe, you know, and you're able to do your job 
free of abuse uh, and harm. And I think, you know, like you're saying, some very, very small things. Employers <coughs> can do some very small, small things. But I think the caution employers have, and something that we really address in our policy development workshop, is that the employer does not have to take this on. Don't think for a second that you have to take on responsibility for their safety. Um, engaging in a policy, having a very clear process is very much about being able to spot the signs, knowing what to do when you do spot the signs, where you can go then for that help and support. And I think once employers kind of understand they're not expected to take on this responsibility all by themselves, we will support and guide you through that, kind of allows them just to breathe. Because mm. uh, I think there is this anxiety around opening a can of worms, making things worse for them, getting involved in something they don't want to get involved in. So we have to set those boundaries for them. We have to be very clear uh, what good support looks like, the kind of measures that somebody may need in place, but know importantly where to go to get that advice and that support. And once you've got all of that in place, it doesn't have to be overwhelming for yeah. an employer. Um, so I would say to that that follower to to kind of read that article, get their employer yeah. to read that article contact because they you. will be and contact us because um, they will see absolutely the impact uh, that that's having across the workforce. If you've mm. got an employer that's uh, that's got sort of very low culture and understanding around domestic abuse, it will be impacting on them. Um, and they won't even realise it'll be impacting on attendance, lateness, productivity. Yeah. It's impacting everywhere. They're just not necessarily recognising it. Yeah. Um, right, one final question. I know we've been talking for a while now. Um, we'll end on a positive one. It says, how to regain power after an abusive relationship and how to keep that power when you're dating again? Oh, it's a really, that's a really lovely question, isn't it, to end on uh, as well. So um, what we say um, as well, you know, really when we think about somebody coming out the other side of an abusive uh, relationship, we talk about the three key elements, the three important elements, which are education, empowerment and keeping safe. So when we talk about, I'm going to start at the end, I'm going to start with keeping safe, uh, because when somebody has had an experience like domestic abuse, um, often uh, their identity has been eroded, their confidence has been eroded, um, their self-esteem has been eroded. So keeping safe isn't just keeping them safe, safe physically, keeping them, it's about keeping them safe psychologically as well, and building that confidence. Because what happens is somebody that's been in a very abusive relationship, Relationship, um, that relationship will have been all-consuming. Always talk about, you know, the sort of healthy different aspects of a relationship. And normally that we've got a lot going on in our life. We've got a busy life. But when somebody that's been abused, that relationship has taken over their life. So when we remove that relationship or that relationship has gone, it leaves this massive gaping hole. And a gaping hole can sometimes be quite dangerous. It can make somebody feel quite empty. It can make them feel very lonely. So often they feel that void, uh, that sense of regaining control perhaps, and they rush to fill that void, perhaps with things that aren't necessarily uh, very healthy. So we work uh, with our survivors around building that confidence, building that self-esteem to keep them safe, both physically and psychologically, and, and make sure that they're actually breaking that cycle of, of domestic abuse. Often you find somebody that hasn't done that very successfully will go back and repeat that cycle somewhere else because the loneliness and the emptiness is is far worse than what they were experiencing mm. um, before. So we very much then uh, work around what we call this education and empowerment uh, plan. So we kind of think about what maybe they may need to know and understand in order 
to make sure that we break that cycle for good. So actually, were there any driving factors in that relationship? What were the barriers in even getting out of that relationship? Because we want to make sure that doesn't potentially happen again. So we want to work with them very closely to identify. And this is why we talk about the complexity of domestic abuse, because some of these vulnerabilities that were sat around the edge, like trauma, mental health issues, substance misuse issues, they were big drivers in in them kind of becoming embroiled in that relationship. And they then acted as barriers in getting out of that relationship. So we want to make sure that we've addressed all of them and we've done what we can to support somebody. So for instance, if they've got an unresolved trauma, for instance, if they suffered abuse as a child, um, if we kind of just assume that somebody's left that abusive relationship and they're just going to go back um, to being fine maybe well they were never fine to begin with were they we never ever so we have to work really hard um to help break that cycle to look at all of their different needs and we always urge anybody that's experienced domestic abuse to really still have a very strong education empowerment and keeping safe plan going forward that they may have in many ways for the rest of their their life it's like somebody that that potentially um has struggled with addiction or they've struggled with weight loss for instance they they always have to have those those elements those protective those protective factors that back in my mind you know i know when i'm slipping yeah i know when i'm slipping i know when i don't feel great i know when my mental health isn't great and if my mental health isn't great that's when i don't make the best decisions Mm. and i start to see things differently so it's really becoming very very self-aware and making sure if there are any additional vulnerabilities we're getting the right support in place yeah access professional services um remember that power never left you you always had the power you were just stopped from using it Mm -hmm. um and so now that you've got your power back one of the biggest powers is learning about what happened to you what led you there trying to heal that with therapy if you can and and then expecting that that there's so much power in knowing that that ex-partner will probably come back and try to love bomb you or tell you that they've changed or get in somehow there's a lot of power in 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 blocking that every single time and being strong enough to never go back there and you should really feel proud every time that you say no fuck off go away when you don't necessarily say fuck off but you know what i mean yeah um it's developing that insight isn't it to what's happening you know this is likely to happen how are we going to manage that yeah what what are they trying what are they doing when they're yeah and regain yeah regaining being able that to control. be prepared for what might happen and knowing what your strategies are um And then that education will help you to keep that power when dating again um, and setting those boundaries based on all the things that you've learned about the previous relationship. Boundary setting is really important. You know, know in your mind what you will and you will not tolerate. And that's it. These are my boundaries. And anything that oversteps them, I am able to to say no now because I've learned from that. So set your boundaries and know that you're allowed to have boundaries. Um, And also try to do something that you're really proud of accomplishments are a really good way of (coughs) recognizing your own power even if that's i've always wanted to know how to make ceramic vases or whatever you know there's a huge power in being able to go i made that i did that or going to a spin class when you've been terrified of going to spin classes all, all your life or even going and getting a phd i mean you can take that accomplishment as far as as you want but but little accomplishments are a really good way of being able to feel proud of yourself. I think that that really 
works very well. Um, you always say somebody needs to be able to find themselves again after an abusive relationship because they've often lost a sense of, yeah. of self. They've constantly been looking at that other person to tell them what they like and what they don't like. You know, it's finding themselves again. But allowing them to take that time to do that. Don't embark on another relationship after an abusive relationship without finding who you are yeah. again, you know, finding and and maybe you'll find a newer, slightly different version of yourself if there were kind of trauma and things, things sort of um, in the background. And certainly people that, that have had abuse, if they've had the experience abuse, if they've then had the right support after that, they go on to be much stronger yeah. going forward. It's, it's given them insight. If, if somebody allows them and works with them to develop that insight and find who they are again, mm. they go on to be much stronger going forward. <coughs> I think another lovely way is being of service to others in some way is yes. an incredibly powerful thing whether that be just volunteering in your local community or actually directly helping other people who are in abusive relationships, volunteering, sharing your story, helping others. I think that gives you this immense power um, and makes you much less likely to to go on to other abusive relationships because you've kind of, you're now setting the bar, really. You're teaching other people how to not do this and, you know, it keeps you kind of in this powerful mode of like, I can help other people. I'm, I'm doing yeah. really well out here, you know? Um, but, but, but professional support is really, really important after abusive relationship. Nothing can replace that. Really. I think it's a big support network. And I think around your friends and family, but also mm. that professional, it's going back to what we were saying at the beginning, isn't it? You know, you, you don't always just want to rely on people that may care a lot about you but they may not kind of be experts in in that trauma that you've yeah. experienced and how that's affected you. So we absolutely need our friends. We absolutely need our family, but never ever underestimate the power of proper professional support as well to really develop that that insight into, into what's happened and, and kind of ultimately control and insight over it going forward. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, we've come to the end. I'm so sorry to listeners for the whole dog issues that we were experiencing <laughs> at the beginning. She's, she's absolutely fine she's now. finally settled. Should have got the chair out a long time ago. Uh, and apologies for my COVID cough, which has been continuous throughout. So, um, But I hope that didn't distract too much from the amazing Lucy Whitaker and oh, her fabulous knowledge. Um, what does Alpha Vesta, why, where did that come from? Oh, Alpha Vesta, I spent ages... Um, kind of um sort of designing our logo and what, what I wanted it to look like and I actually came up with the logo before the name because when I was in my previous um role and my and my and job that I had it was very much about working with people in crisis and feeling quite hemmed in because you can only kind of you know yourself in that career not not being able to go anywhere you didn't have any any kind of control they were kind of subject to all these other services as well and um Somebody always said, oh, you've you've lost your wings. You feel like you need to find mm. your wings again. So I developed these wings, this concept of wings and flying before I developed the name. But alpha is very much about that regaining control. Mm. So we think about alpha male, alpha female. But Vesta is very much about the home as well. So Vesta is often a sort of center of the home. It's kind of a core of our home life. So it's kind of regaining control of our, of our home, our home life, but very empowering as well. So it's quite deep, isn't it? Yeah, quite deep, I really. Like it. <laughs> So you can find Alpha Vesta at www.alfavesta. Uh, is there CIC in your website? No, just Alpha so alphavesta.com. Uh, and they're also on Instagram, Alpha Vesta. Or are you W? Yes. 
Don't know what I am on Instagram, actually. I'll have a look. Well, I'll tag you in all the stories anyway. You know anyway, I'm not so very good on Instagram. People will be able to um, find you. Hang on. I can't even find you now. My Instagram's gone funny. But anyway. Um, all right. You are alpha underscore Vesta underscore CIC. Oh, we are on Instagram. Yeah, You are CIC, on Instagram. Not on the website. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, get your employers to contact them. Get a policy going in your in your workplace and join the training if you can on Eventbrite. It's really good. Um, social workers, this podcast, or, and professionals, this podcast will count towards your CDC, your ongoing professional development, but also so will the training sessions that Alpha yes. Vesta put on. So um lots for you to do there all right thank you so much for coming i really really appreciate you and uh hopefully we'll do lots of work together in the future i hope so thank you all right bye bye